Some of you may recognize this place. Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, right here in Concord, Mass. One of the advantages of doing church online is that we've been able to meet in some unusual places this past year. A beach, a barn, an office building, a college campus, my living room. But this has to be the, the most unusual and maybe the most uncomfortable of them all. A cemetery. But the Easter story begins in a place like this, in a graveyard, in the morning, in the wake of a great loss. So here we are. Now, this particular cemetery is something of a tourist attraction. There are some famous people buried here. I'm standing on what's known as Author's Ridge, where four cultural influencers were laid to rest a century and a half ago. Right here we have Henry David Thoreau, or Thoreau if you're a local. Author, writer, philosopher, naturalist. He was famous for spending a couple years living in the woods down here near Walden Pond. Considered one of the leading voices of the transcendentalist movement. He died in 1862, at the age of 44, of complications brought on by bronchitis. Across the way, we come to Nathaniel Hawthorne, the famous American novelist. Scarlet Letter, House of the Seven Gables, a handsome dude, apparently. He also lived and wrote here in Concord for a period of time. He died in 1864, just two years after his friend Thoreau. Going on a few steps farther, we come to the grave of Louisa May Alcott, author, abolitionist, feminist, most famous, of course, for Little Women, but she wrote many others. She grew up here in Concord in the company of these literary lights, and they had a profound influence on her. She died in 1888 of a stroke, 20-some years after these others. Cemeteries are intriguing places, aren't they? I mean, you find them everywhere, all over the world, in every culture. Graveyards, burial grounds, family plots, caves, from the very earliest days of human history. We seem to have this innate human need to, to set aside places, places we go to remember people and days gone by. On a sunny day, they can be beautiful. On a cold and gray day, they can be awfully dreary. You come out to a place like this at night, and it can be downright spooky. I read somewhere that houses near cemeteries sell for 12% less than houses in a regular neighborhood. Well, going on a bit, we come to the granddaddy of them all, founding father of the transcendentalist movement and uh, a mentor to all these others, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He actually went by Waldo, which I never knew. Brilliant mind, prolific writer, 
gave thousands of lectures in his lifetime all over the world. But in his later years, he suffered from what was probably Alzheimer's. And he died of pneumonia in 1882. So Thoreau, Hawthorne, Alcott, Emerson, they're all here. They've been here for 150 years, and they'll remain here as long as the Earth lasts. I mean, think about that. The interesting thing about this cemetery is that it was designed by landscape architects. Their vision was that it would be a garden of the living. A garden of the living. That's a strange way to describe a place full of dead people. I mean, places like this, cemeteries, graveyards, tombs, th this is where stories end, right? Where life ceases. These four great figures, they're not with us anymore. I mean, their influence lives on for sure, but their earthly stories ended here, in a grave, as does every human story. Except one. The Easter story begins in a place like this, with a handful of grieving women coming out to pay their last respects to a friend and mentor. But something happened there, something completely unexpected, so surprising, so remarkable, that they would have a hard time believing it. And so would everyone else who heard about it, including us. But something so remarkable that, if it was true, it really would change everything. So let's take a closer look at what happened that day. See if there's any reason to believe that our stories don't have to end in places like this. Any reason to believe that the graveyard really can become a garden. I'm going to walk down to a quieter spot where we can talk. But as I do, I'd like you to think for a minute about the last time you visited a cemetery. Now, maybe it was recently, as you laid to rest someone that you've loved and lost. And we've had way too much of that this past year. Well, maybe it was a while ago, as you went to honor and remember a friend or a family member. Maybe it was just to take a walk in a quiet place, whenever it was. Think about the last time you were in a cemetery. What, what emotions did it bring to the surface? What, what questions did it raise for you about life and death and meaning and, and what happens next? Think about that for a minute and, and then we'll talk. Well, the kids did a pretty good job explaining Luke 24 for us, but why don't we take a closer look? We'll begin here in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, this is the final chapter in what we call the Gospel of Luke. For 23 chapters, he's told us the story of Jesus of Nazareth, his humble birth, his ordinary childhood, 
three years of public ministry, and his violent and unjust death. It's a remarkable story, but it seems to have ended like every other earthly story in a graveyard with a cold and stiffening body hastily laid to rest. But then we come to chapter 24. And as we walk through these opening lines, let's let's remember that, that Luke is a master storyteller. So every detail is important. So notice again how it begins. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning. We have three other gospel accounts of this event, and all four of them tell us that it began early in the morning. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us it was still dark when the women set out. So the women took the spices they had prepared and and went to the tomb. They, They were headed to the graveyard to do what we all do when we come to places like this. We come to honor and remember someone to leave some token of our love and admiration, flowers or stuffed animals. Uh, Maybe you saw that people often leave pens at Louisa May Alcott's grave. Something that says we remember them. So it's pretty clear what the women were expecting to find there, a body, a corpse, to put it bluntly, already beginning to decay in the heat of a Middle Eastern spring. And so they brought spices to cover up the smell, to bring some beauty and dignity to an awful scene. What they found caught them completely by surprise. And let's just say that surprises are not what we're looking for when we come to a cemetery, right? I mean, when it comes to graves, we'd kind of like things to be right where they're supposed to be. It was the first surprise they found was that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Now, for a moment, they might have been relieved because they'd been wondering how they would move that stone. But, but wait, it, it's barely morning. Who could possibly have been there before them? I mean, they left all the others sleeping, hiding out back in Jerusalem. So who would have done this? What was happening? But when they entered, Luke says, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> Wait a minute. When they entered? <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I find an open crypt in the dim light of dawn, I don't think I'm going in. <laughs> These women are brave. And that's when they can't find the second surprise. The body is not there. <laughs> Luke says, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'm trying to imagine them looking for the body. I mean, how many places are there to look in a tomb? What's he behind the furniture? Now, obviously, there were probably multiple resting places in that space. But but they had seen him laid to rest just two days before. They knew where he was supposed to be. But he wasn't there. Which obviously raised all kinds of questions. Where was he? What's happened? While they were wondering this, Luke says. Now, he uses an interesting word here for wondering. It means to to be perplexed or confused, but, but leaning in the direction of doubt rather than belief. So these women were struggling with all of this. As it turned out, they didn't have much time to wonder because another surprise was coming their way. 
Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. Now, I don't think these women were following some kind of established protocol for what you do when you greet an angel. I don't think they knew who or what they were dealing with. They were just awestruck and afraid. But then comes the biggest surprise of all. The men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Not here, <laughs> well then where? Risen, what does that mean? I mean, according to a couple other gospel writers, the angels went on to tell the women that Jesus was going ahead of them to Galilee and that they could find him there. Now, let's try to put ourselves in their sandals for a moment. Imagine coming out to a Sleepy Hollow Cemetery to, to visit the graves of these great literary figures. And when you get to the top of Author's Ridge, you find a couple of park rangers waiting for you, and they say to you, oh, are you looking for Thoreau? He's down at the pond giving a lecture. <laughs> or, or, or Louisa May? Oh, she's giving tours over at Orchard House. I mean, that would sound ridiculous. You would have no category for processing that kind of news. So I'm trying to get at here is that, that these women had no reason to believe what the angels were telling them. There was no precedent for such a thing, not in the scriptures. There was no expectation that Israel's Messiah was going to die and rise from the dead. The only notion of resurrection in Jewish thinking was a resurrection of all the dead someday at the end of the age. And while it's true that they had seen Jesus resuscitate a few people who had succumbed to illness, this was a whole different thing. I mean, they'd been there as Jesus was brutally beaten. They watched as he was nailed to the cross and as the, as the life literally drained from his body. They were there when his lifeless form was taken down, hauled away and laid to rest on a stone cold slab. There was no resuscitating that body. So there's no precedent for this in the scripture. There's no precedent for a personal resurrection like this and nothing in their experience. Every person they knew who died stayed right where they'd been laid to rest. Even other so-called messiahs who'd been put to death, none of them had risen. They were still on their tombs. So these women had no reason or precedent for believing that Jesus had come back to life. And frankly, neither do we. If you struggle with the Easter story, with the idea of resurrection, I mean, you're not alone. How can any of us believe that kind of a thing? But there was one more surprise waiting for the women. The angels continued, Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and raised again on the third day. Turns out that Jesus had actually predicted that this would happen, several times, in fact. But somehow, the women hadn't really heard it or taken it seriously, and neither had anyone else. 
But now, with the empty tomb in front of them and the words of the angels ringing in their ears, Luke says, then they remembered his words. That word remembered implies that they, that they began to believe. They began to believe that something supernatural was happening, that God was at work, that, that Jesus might just be everything they had believed him to be, and more. The other writers tell us that some of the women actually encountered Jesus outside the tomb. Mary actually mistook him for the gardener, of all things. So by the time they got back to Jerusalem and told the disciples, they really had come to believe it. Luke says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense, like idle chatter. And, and we really can't blame them, right? I mean, who could believe such a report, then or now? So I got to thinking about, about why these women believed, but the others didn't. I mean, how do we explain the faith of these women? And why do some of us believe and others not believe? Well, a few things came to my mind. For one thing, the, these women considered the evidence. I mean, they saw the stone rolled away. They stood inside the empty tomb. They looked for the body, but it wasn't there. So it seems like a first step on the journey to faith is to consider the evidence. And there is evidence, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, even these many centuries later. The empty tomb that no one's been able to explain. The transformation of the disciples from doubting cowards to courageous leaders willing to die for their beliefs. The rise of the Christian faith and church. I mean, how else do we explain any of these things apart from the resurrection of Jesus? If you're struggling with the resurrection of Christ, have you really considered the evidence? Well, for another thing, these women re-examined Jesus. When the angels reminded them of what Jesus had said, they replayed his words and deeds in their minds. And, and they heard things they hadn't heard before. They saw things they hadn't seen before. They put the pieces together and they realized what he was trying to tell them all along, that he was, in fact, Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. How closely have you examined the life and teaching of Jesus? Now, most of us are familiar with the Jesus story, but, but have you ever read the Gospels for yourself? Have, have you dared to to ask questions, even hard ones, and listen for the answers? Have you asked other people why they believe and follow Jesus? Uh, so these women considered the evidence. They, they re-examined Jesus. But thirdly, they experienced something personally. See, faith isn't just an intellectual exercise. It's not just affirming a set of propositions. Faith is a personal response to the revelation of God. 
a, a, a God who has come near to us in Jesus and who speaks to us through his spirit. There's an experiential element to faith. Something happens in us and around us that opens our minds and hearts to, to the reality of God. It happened to the women in the presence of those angels and, and then in their encounters with Jesus outside the tomb. Something happened to them. Something happened in them that they couldn't fully explain, but they couldn't deny either. Has something like that ever happened to you? Have you ever sensed something stirring inside you? Something troubling you or awakening you? Maybe it's happened in a cemetery at the grave of someone that you love. Maybe it's happened in church or watching a sunset or being loved unconditionally by another person or wanting something more out of life. Have you ever actually invited God to come near to you, to, to make himself known to you? These women came to believe Christ had risen because they considered the evidence that they examined the life and teaching of Jesus and they experienced something personally. Now that hadn't happened yet for the others in that upper room. And so they didn't believe it when they first heard it. And again, we can't blame them, can we? But one of them decided to check it out for himself. Let's look at uh, verse 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, you've got to love Peter. He, he just can't sit still after hearing this story. I've always kind of imagined Peter as kind of borderline ADHD. So he runs to the tomb his mind worrying the whole time, I'm sure. And he confronts the evidence, the empty tomb, the grave clothes. He bends over for a closer look. And then he walks away, wondering to himself what had happened. It's the second time we find someone wondering in this story. But this time, Luke uses a different word for wondering. It still has the idea of uh, being perplexed or confused. But this word is more hopeful. It leans in the direction of belief rather than doubt. In fact, another translation says, he went away marveling at what happened. Now, he's not there yet, I don't think, at the point of belief. But something's happened that he can't explain. Something's stirring inside him that he can't ignore. And with a little more time, and a few more experiences, he's going to get there. He's going to believe big time. And so will the rest of them. So what do we do with this story some 2,000 years later? What does it mean for us? How should we respond to it? Well, for what it means, I keep coming back to those intriguing words the angels spoke to the women. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. In other words, why would you look for someone as alive as Jesus in a place of death? 
Why would you expect the most remarkable story you've ever heard to end like every other earthly story? Why do you look for hope in a place that has always disappointed you? See, cemeteries are about the past. They're places we go to look backwards, to remember lives already lived. Now, places like this can be beautiful, they can be meaningful, but, but no one lives in a cemetery. No one says, hey, let's go down to the graveyard and have a picnic. I mean, nothing happens in places like this. No one opens a business in a burial ground because there's no life there. There's no activity. Cemeteries are where stories end, where people are laid to rest. Thoreau, Hawthorne, Alcott, Emerson, they're all here, and they'll remain here. Jesus is not here, the angel said. You won't find him in a place like this. Not because death isn't real, or because he was afraid of it, but because he conquered it. Because he faced death full on and defeated it. He's risen. He's moved on. And Matthew says, the angel said to the women, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. In the days to come, they were going to encounter Jesus in the places they actually lived. Around a table in the upper room. On the commute home, the road to Emmaus by the Sea of Galilee, where they worked and raised their families. Easter is about life, not death. It's about the future, not the past. It's about early in the morning on the first day of the week. It's about possibilities, not precedents. Easter is about living life forward. There you will see him, out there, where you live and work and play and grow. So what does Easter mean for us? It means that graveyards really can become gardens. Graves are about the past. Gardens are about the future. Graves are where things cease. Gardens are where things grow. And so those architects weren't far off when they imagined this place as a garden of the living. And Mary wasn't mistaken when she took Jesus for the gardener. Because graves become gardens when we invite Christ into the story. When we leave the past behind and follow a risen Jesus to new, better, and eternal life. And if ever the world needed a message like that, a message of new beginnings, of, of life lived forward, it's now in 2021. As we emerge from a year that has brought worldwide fear and death, a year that has exposed too many of our darker human tendencies. If we ever need a, a reason to believe that better things are possible, it's now. And Easter gives us that reason. Because if Christ has risen, we can rise too. If death can be defeated, so can hate and injustice and violence and evil. Graves become gardens when we invite Christ into the story. Now, now speaking of stories, uh, back in October, I, I met a couple who attended one of our watch gatherings in Lexington. Uh, Dave and Kim were dating and had started attending Grace right before we had to shut down for COVID. 
but, but they kept up with us online. Uh, we had a, a brief conversation in the parking lot that day. I learned that they're, they're both medical professionals. Kim, a nurse practitioner, and Dave, a trauma surgeon, who's also served for 19 years with the Army Special Ops community. Kim had grown up in the church, but then drifted away for a while and it was finding her way back. Dave had some religious background, but, but this was his first experience with a church like Grace. And even though we just met, we just sort of hit it off. And Dave, and Dave and I found out we were both runners, so, so he invited me to join him on a run sometime. Sure, I said, only to discover he had done 60 marathons and a dozen Ironmans. But a couple of weeks later, he dragged me along on a run with he and his dog, Fletcher. And as we ran, he shared their story with me. And it became clear to me that God was at work in their lives in some remarkable ways. And so I sat down with them recently and invited them to tell me a little bit more about it. So let's listen in on that conversation. So Dave, as I remember, you had some religious foundations in your life as a kid, but then in more recent years as an adult, you've found yourself in some pretty difficult and even dark places. I, I grew up in a, um, in a very small um, Christian church. I, I went through the motions because I felt like I had to, but I never felt completely committed. After I joined the army and deployed and started seeing some of the worst parts of humanity, and by the way, some of the best parts of humanity as well. Probably what many people don't know is uh, all forward military units usually deploy with a chaplain. You know, I went through this repetitive cycle, deployment after deployment, where I thought to myself, boy, I really feel good talking to this guy. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find my way back to the church when I get home. And then, of course, you get home and you're back to work. And it, it just, it, I failed to initiate every time I, I got back home. There were a, a, a couple of events that, that really shook me. One was a, a, a helicopter crash called Extortion 17, where I, I lost many, many good friends. Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, my experience at taking care of the folks at the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, I had um, an elective procedure done uh, on my heart, which resulted in a variety of complications and uh, a, a near-death experience. In the process of, of going through that, feeling like God had grabbed me by the lapels and, and was shaking me and saying, hey man, it's, now, is, now is the time. So I grew up in a Christian home, both my parents fully committed to Christ, and we went to church every Sunday, and so I go through high school and college, and then I leave college, and, which was a Christian college, by the way, and all of a sudden, I could do whatever I wanted to. So I could make any decisions, and I made some bad ones. So I really kind of drifted away, and I thought, well, I'm not gonna go to church on Sundays and then live however I want the next six days of my life. And so I just really just kind of did whatever I wanted to. Dave and I got together, and God really gave me this gift in Dave. You, you came and visited, had some good experiences. At a certain point, decided, hey, I better check this out. So you took Alpha, which is our introduction to the Christian faith course. So tell me about the Alpha experience and what that was like. Alpha really provided um, a, a structure of, of understanding and uh, a way 
a way to ask pointed questions in a very understanding and, uh, and non-judgmental atmosphere. I have to say it was, it was remarkable. In the Alpha class, you, you know, you can dig down into some pretty gnarly details uh, and, and what I would even say are some, some pretty messy questions, some of which don't really have good answers. One of the major lessons I, I took away is, is that sometimes we're not meant to know all the answers all the time and that's okay. All of this has led to some pretty big decisions and changes in your life. Uh, Kim, tell us what's been happening in your, in your lives recently. So as Dave alludes to, we had kind of wanted to get into going to Grace together and we were all very excited about it and then COVID happened and so we sit on the couch and we watch Grace on Sunday morning <laughs> or sometimes we're on the treadmill. I'm not on the treadmill. And, um, you know, we were also very... Sorry, I, yes, I am guilty of... Watching Grace on the treadmill. No, that's all right. But that's okay. I have to multitask. But that is what that is what I mean, though, about God giving me Dave as a as a gift and showing me that just because I grew up in a church doesn't mean that I have it all figured out. Of of course, I mean that sounds silly to say, but you have to recognize that for yourself. And that all of this, of course, culminated in your wedding. Yes, February twenty seventh, we got married. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you to you. Well, I, I, I got to do that. That was a lot of fun. So it's just been a joy to be a part of that story, to watch the Lord work in your life. You know, what strikes me about Dave and Kim's story is that in the midst of what I think we'd all agree has been an awful year or so, a year of, of death and loss and fear and loneliness, in the midst of all that difficulty and darkness, God has been doing a remarkable, beautiful work in the lives of two people, bringing them together, bringing each of them to a deeper relationship with himself, into a church community, and now giving birth to a new family and a new household, turning, turning graves into gardens, as we've been talking about here today. What would it look like for God to do a work like that in your life, or in the life of someone that you know. Let's think about that for a few minutes as we listen to this next song, and, and then I'll come back and wrap things up. <laughs> 